Thanks for tuning in to Horizon Community Church's podcast. Our hope and prayer is that wherever you are, you would be encouraged by this message and be equipped to face any challenges that come your way. More information about Horizon can be found at www.horizonweb.org. As I've been saying during this whole year, I've been going through the Psalms and uh, I don't know what number this is going back through again. I just seem to camp out on one for a while and then go from there. But Psalm 38 has kind of rang my bell in several ways because David talks about just the pure sinfulness of man, that just how bad we truly are, but then it turns into how good God really is. And so this phrase, I was reading something by Tim Keller, and he said something to this degree, and I said, I kind of like how that flows. So this is going to be the main point through this series we're going through right now, which is probably weird at Christmas time, that we are more sinful and weaker than we could ever believe, while at the same time more sought after and loved than we could possibly comprehend. And I hope Christmas, at least for me this year, is one that we don't miss it. We get all caught up into everything and actually miss Christmas, especially pastors, because we're planning messages for everybody else. But what about my family and what about the message to me? But to realize the whole point of Christmas is that Jesus came to die on a cross to rise from the dead. That Jesus came because we are sinful people and we are weak. We cannot save ourselves and we bring nothing to the game. But then you read how sought after and how loved we truly are that's even beyond comprehension. Um, So let me start off with a question today uh, to see if you agree or disagree with this. That we live in times of polarization and fragmentation. Yes or no? Yeah. I mean, I I can't say that it's never been that way. Maybe it has throughout time. I'm just aware that it just seems like things have changed so quickly. Um, A pastor in Minnesota, Steve Lee, said this. In many places, the ties that have historically bound societies together are coming apart. Our own society has been brewing a strong and growing distrust of everything under the sun. I mean, look at it, and maybe this is my list, not necessarily yours. We don't trust elected, uh, many elected officials or government officials anymore, it seems. It seems medical institutions are just, we don't, we don't, I don't trust, you know, what they're saying. Again, we doubt the large corporations. I mean, you see stuff like Apple and NFL and NBA and all this stuff, and I just, to see the agendas that they push, suspicious about any media outlets that are out there. I mean, we've been, educational system seems like to have failed us on many different levels. And even the church has not been immune to that, where people doubt what the church exists, what's the purpose of this institution in the first place. It's all exaggerated by the internet, 24-hour news system, and the lovely social media that's out there. I love this statement. All of it keeps feeding our distress, distrust and rewarding our outrage. Doesn't it? 
I mean, no matter where you lean, no matter what you're watching, it seems like it gets, feeds the distrust, distrust we have and it just rewards our anger and our outrage. Stephen Lee ended with, hope is eroding like sandcastles at high tide. Christmas is a time where hope is brought. Christmas is a time where love, the love of God, is on display. I think we need that more than any other time in history. Uh, one particular person I listened to uh, is a guy named Matt Walsh. and uh, He said something this week that I, I had never thought of before in my life, but it sure makes sense. He says, one thing we know about evil is that we know it doesn't create anything on its own. It has no creative power. Evil only subverts what already exists. It takes what is good and turns it on its head and desecrates the holy and sacred. And that's true. I mean, whatever evil does, I mean, evil will take God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And flip it around. If you really loved me, then you'd give me the world. Just switches it around. So he takes something good and just devastates the sacred. And Christmas, it seems like all canons bear on this. And, and we Christians, sometimes we're to blame for this because we get caught up in the fanfare. Understand, the church in its 2,000-year history only till recently in that 2,000 years has it celebrated Christmas. I mean, there wasn't Christmas in the early church and trees and where we're celebrating the birth of Christ because we really don't know when the birth of Christ is. This is a guess. But they celebrated Easter because that's what it's all about. It's only till in the last few hundred years, really, where the church is just gathered on and we've jumped on this wagon. And I'm not saying we're doing anything evil. I'll have a tree up in my house. We'll have presents. We'll do all this. It just seems that how easy it is for us as believers to focus on the gifts under the Christmas tree rather than the gift of Christmas itself. That's why I, this series on paradox, which John Trotter's favorite world of all time, matter of fact, he gave me a book called Paradox, of all things, and it was a very interesting read. And that got me thinking, I forgot when you gave it to me in the beginning of the beginning of summer, but all of a sudden just cut clicking. I just wrote it down and okay, that's that's my sermon title for Christmas series, Paradox. Now, a paradox is this. This is what Webster says. A paradox is a seemingly true statement or group of statements that lead to a contradiction or a situation which seems to defy logic or intuition. And there are hundreds of paradoxes out there. Just type paradox in your Google search and they'll just list one after another after another. Some of the most interesting paradoxes are found in math. So I, I, need, I, need, a, I need a volunteer. Do I have a volunteer? Someone who's actually going to come up here on stage. I'm not going to mic you or anything. I just want you to try something for me. So give me a hand or I'll pull you out and embarrass you on live TV. Anybody? Come on. It's easy. All right. Come on up. Give her a hand. Come on up here, Miss Laqueta. 
come up on stage here. I have a simple geometry puzzle here. Come on, come on up here. It's a puzzle. It's a simple puzzle. All right. Excuse me. Okay. Just on the side. That's right. Okay. This is just four pieces. If you can see this, it's just a triangle. She's just going to put all the pieces which are identical in the triangle. All right. So fit those in there, however you want to try. Okay. So you got a couple of angled ones, green ones, square ones. got plenty of time in the section, so don't worry about it. Okay. Rotate it one more time. And go up in the corner. There you go. <laughs> no? Help you. There you go. Okay. Now these are identical pieces. All right? You see the red, same size, everything's the same size. But if I go like this, why is there a square missing? You see that? They fit. All I said is have the fit. All of them fit. They're the exact same triangle, exact same shapes. But when I arrange it this way, there's a box open. This is a mathematical ge geometry paradox right here. Now, it, we can say, well, it's the angles. No, you did not. No, this is perfect. Give her a hand. Give them Mr. Requeta a hand. Thank you. No, you, you got to leave this here. You can't take it home. There's no, re no party gifts. You can go on. Go on down. Why is there, I mean, it's the exact same. This is one of those things you go, okay, wait a minute. There must be maybe a little bit of difference. They're exactly the same. But if you arrange it a little bit differently, there's a whole square that's not in this one. Even though it takes up the same space as both. This is what you call paradox. You kind of look at this going, that doesn't make sense. You got this and you got this. They don't equal, but they're the same, but they're different. Paradox. When we look at Christmas, when we look at the incarnation, it is a paradox. Here's a great definition of a paradox. A paradox is truth held in tension of contradiction. Paradoxes are how we discover the truth about you and God in the tension of contradiction. Paradoxes are unique this way because they communicate two things to pull together. Communicate something about ourselves, communicate something about God. And when you talk about the incarnation, which is what Christmas is, again, the dictionary for incarnation is this, embodied in flesh, it refers to the conception that the embodiment of a deity or spirit in some earthly form, the appearance of God as human. 
and that's what we talk about, the incarnation truly is. It's where God took on flesh, the son of God, the son of man. How can he be both? Is he just part God or is he just part man? Is he 90% God, 10% man? How does this all work? But that's why it's a paradox because just when you think you got it, all of a sudden a square shows up. Wait a minute, how can that, that can't be because it fits here, but it doesn't fit there. And that's what Christmas, when you really begin to think about what we're talking about. So have your Bibles, your smartphones, go to Luke chapter one. Only a few of the gospels really talk about the story of Christ's birth and especially in regards to the announcement to Mary. Now in Luke, Zechariah has already been told about John the Baptist and he's mute. Elizabeth is now pregnant. And it says in verse 26 of Luke one, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. I have those underlined because it's very important to the story. Now, you may disagree that the virgin birth ever took place, but you can't disagree that the Bible talked about it. I mean, you could say, no, it can't happen. All right. But the Bible says it does. And a matter of fact, this is a Old Testament prophecy given to Isaiah. In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. Can you imagine as Isaiah wrote this going, what, a virgin having a kid? And that's again, and this is the, a virgin can't have a baby. Then she wouldn't be a virgin anymore, right? Because she's got to get pregnant. So how, how's that working? And that's the beginning of the paradox. It says in verse 28, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Now, she was greatly troubled because this greeting that he gave her, you are highly favored. It's only found one other place in the book of Ephesians. But the problem is Mary had no rank at all. She had no status in the whole system of Judaism. One, she was 12 to 14 years old. She, she was a woman on top of that. Sorry, women, but they didn't get first rate there. There was a woman on top of that, and she wasn't married. So she didn't rank at any kind of greeting. That's why this greeting, when it says, you are highly favored and God wants an audience with you. What? And she's greatly troubled. This greatly troubled means something thoroughly stirred up, confused, and perplexed because she's never been greeted that way. And she's not down the angels. She doesn't say, who are you? What are you doing here? Anything else? She's just perplexed at the whole concept that she was greeted in such a way. An angel who promises a special audience with God is confusing her. Verse 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. 
You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name of Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Again, a prophecy right there from Isaiah, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be ever on his shoulders, and he will be called, and you'll be singing this on the radio or in your house, right? Wonderful counselor. You know, the whole Messiah theme. If you ever listen to the Messiah, it's this concept of wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. You have to understand, the Jews have been waiting for this Messiah. These words are not getting, uh, being put on deaf ears. That would peak them up. All of a sudden, Isaiah is being quoted twice, a virgin, and then, then his throne will last forever under the uh, house of David. I mean, all this is going through her mind. And her question in verse 34 is, how will this be since I am a virgin? Zechariah, when told he was going to have a son, also asked, wait a minute, how's that, how's that possible? <laughs> because she's, my wife's old. I mean, there's no way we can have kids. And he was instantly mutified, all right? He wasn't able to speak after that. Well, Mary asked the same question, how will this be? But it's not that she's doubting what the angel's saying. She just can't comprehend. Yeah. <laughs> A virgin can't have a baby unless she lays with a man in her mind, which is exactly true. That's why this whole story of the virgin birth and everything, you just go, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I can't believe that. All right, you can choose not to believe it, but you can't ever say the Bible doesn't talk about it and preach it. Verse 35, and the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. I read a lot of different authors of how they interpret that. One person said the Holy Spirit would creatively bring about a physical conception. We have a hard time when, when we think about God. Usually we think, most of us don't have a problem with the Father and we get a concept of the Son, but usually the Holy Spirit takes, takes third spot back seat. We don't really talk about it, but now it's the power of the Holy Spirit that's coming upon her. And it says they're overshadowing her. Again, to a Jew, any time an overshadowing, it was the presence of God. This is, if you read in, in Exodus, it's the Shekinah glory that the presence of God would be over. One com commentator put it like this, which is kind of very beautiful. Denoting the mildest and most gentle operation of divine power, that the divine fire should not consume Mary, but make her fruitful. Again, I, I think in pictures when I read words like that, the divine fire, because the Hebrews talks about God as a consuming fire, but this divine power, fire overshadows her, and all of a sudden her womb becomes fruitful and is now pregnant. 
and he will be the Holy One, the Son of God. Now, people say, well, Jesus never referred to himself as the Son of God. Yes, he did. Uh, it's all throughout Scripture that he did. He Usually when he talked of himself, he used the term Son of Man. But on many occasions, several occasions, when all of a sudden the Father is addressing him as his Son, and even the Jews, when they accused him of that, he never denied those things, that he truly was the Son of God. And the important thing to understand here, to realize, no man had anything to do with the birth of Christ. It was all God, and it had to be. The virgin birth had to happen. It goes on in verse 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. Mary, here's a sign for you. Your relative, Elizabeth, she's already pregnant, six months pregnant. And that's where verse 37, where the angel proclaims, which is critical to the story, for nothing is impossible with God. God can do anything he wants. That's what sovereignty means. God can do whatever he wants, when he wants. And his plan has been set forth. His plan has been set forth forever that this moment in time will take place. And nothing that man can do can thwart that. Though they try, God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants because nothing is impossible for him. And that's critical to the story. In that book on uh, the paradox, this is what the author says, Jen Pollock, Michael. God clothed himself with flesh and wiggles his way into the world through a womb, a new Adam coming to set the record straight. He is the word made flesh. Bellowing as he drinks in cold air with his lungs, this baby straightens to stretch, then draws his bony knees to his tiny rib chest. God is covered in the wax, waxy vernax of humanity because God so loved the world he gave his son to show us his face. Again, a very beautiful picture. And why did he do this? Because we are so sinful and so weak beyond what we can believe, but while at the same time he pursues and loves us past the point of where we can comprehend. Paradoxes or a unique way of communicating where two things are put together, that you're going, it seems like a contradiction, but it actually works together. And people during this time, they ask questions, why would God condescend to inhabit a body that sweats and smells? Now, you got to think about it. The God of heaven, the sun, goes into a baby that poops, that smells, that burps, that does all those things. Why would God do that? I don't understand. There's no way God would put himself in that place. And again, that's where we have to remember what evil does. One thing that evil does, it takes, it doesn't create anything on its own. It takes what God has done and turns it and makes it ugly and makes it in their minds impossible. And much like the incarnation, the world has tried since day one to make it into something that it's not. Since day one, 
people have tried to take the truth of the incarnation and twist it. And they're still doing that today. They, they want to put Jesus in a place where he was just like one of us. The Jehovah Witnesses today will put him as he's not a fully God. He wasn't fully God. He was just a man that had godly qualities. The Mormons will say, he, Jesus wasn't the son of God. Jesus was a man just like us, but he lived in such a way that he graduated to become God and you can too. Puts it at the same level. We are not at the same level of Jesus, guys. Never will be. He is the son of God. And throughout history, that's what it, it's been saying. And that's why what the incarnation is not, because there are a lot of the myths of the Romans and the Greeks where God would come down and disguise himself and then have sex with a woman and birth a demigod. It is not that God came down himself and had sex with Mary. That is not what happened either. It's not that God kind of played the role. He came kind of put on a, a human suit and right when the crucifixion happened, he kind of got out of the human suit and the body died, not God. That is not the incarnation. incarnation. Guys, the paradox here is that Jesus was fully God and fully human. And after his execution on the cross, he was put in a damp tomb, and three days later, he rose from the grave. And when he rose, he still had the scars in his hand, in his flesh. As he's sitting at the right hand of the Father right now, he still has the scars, still has the mark on his side that he was the Son of Man, at the same time, the Son of God. And how important it is for us to realize that's what Christmas, the incarnation, even though, how does a virgin have a baby? Oh, with God, anything's possible, God. He can do whatever he wants. But this is how it had to happen that the Son of God, fully God, and the Son of Man, fully human, all in one. And guys, this battle has been fought throughout the, throughout the church history. There's a guy who uh, we owe a great thanks to. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say his name slowly and then I'll work into it. But it's Anthanasius. Anthanasius. He was born in 298 AD in Alexandria, Egypt. And he was a bishop. And during the time where Emperor Constantine, who was the emperor over Rome in 331, is 331? No, 313, made Christianity not the persecuted faith anymore. It made it the religion of the land, which probably was not a help at all to the church. But he made it not persecuted anymore. And under Constantine, many things happened. So you have, you have I got to look at it again, Anthanasius. But then you had this dude named Arius, who was also in Alexandria. Now, Athanasius always preached that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and the Son of Man. But Arius, he started preaching that there's no way if God had Jesus, then Jesus was created. Therefore, he was the first created being. And the first thing that God created, he's not the eternal Son of God. 
And so they put him, much like what the Jehovah Witnesses and to some degree the Mormons preach about Jesus today. That was being preached back then by Arius. And so there was this great friction within the church. And because letters or sermons were being read, and it had been interesting if Twitter was involved at that time, but they actually wrote letters and sent letters. And so all of a sudden, throughout the Christian world, all of a sudden, bishops started lining up with Arius and bishops started lining on with Athanasius. And then the emperor, Constantine, decided we need to call a council of all the church leaders. And that's where we have the Council of Nicaea. Some of you have heard that term. You've heard of the Nicene Creed, which came out of this. And so you have to understand that at this point, all of a sudden, here's Athanasius, who the bishops put him forward. And by, by this time, guys, he's 25 years old. He's 25 years old. Put him at the forefront of this. And Arius was the other one. And they'd start debating. This was the time when a lot of things were being decided and, and all within the church. But all of a sudden, sides started being drawn. And Arius was a great speaker. He was a nice guy. He tried to influence as many bishops as he could. But Athanasius just stood on the truth. We cannot allow this to go this way. And understand, guys, at this time, there was no Bible that they had. Bible hadn't been formed yet. I mean, the Bible had been written. They just hadn't come to all the books, which is part of the council job. They're bringing the books together to form what we would call the Bible today. So they had letters from different places, but there was not, but now let's go to Ephesians. Let's go to Philippians. They didn't have that. So they were going on little pieces of what they've been taught and shown throughout those 200 years. And all of a sudden, this great debate starts taking place between these. And again, Arius is writing secret notes to his bishops. And just, just like you'd see in any city, government, church, some of you guys have been in church business meetings. You got one side, no, we want this color in the carpet. And you got this side, no, we want this. And the divisions and all, that's what's taking place right here. And Athanasius continued to push forward. Guys, we cannot let go of this. Because all of a sudden, there was such a divide that there was a group of bishops in America. Okay, let's compromise. Let's find a good compromise between that. You see that today within the church. You know, the church has stood for this, and now people want to stand for this. Well, let's compromise. Let's, let's find something we can just agree on in the middle. And guys, when you compromise, especially with truth, you always lose if you don't stand on it. And Athanasius stood on it, and Arius just kept pounding on it to the point where Arius was kicked out. Matter of fact, he, was, he had to leave Alexandria because of this, but that didn't stop him. And this battle continued over and over and over again. And the majority of the council sided with Athanasius because he kept standing for the truth. Now, what we know as the Nicene Creed which we're going to read in a little bit here. The Nicene Creed came about, was accepted in, well, I don't know, where is it? Uh, not in 381 AD. 381 AD. So this whole thing started for, it was 56 years that the debate went on. 56 years. That Athanasius just kept pounding away at the truth. And because he was so adamant, he was eventually kicked out of his church in Alexandria 
different Roman emperors took over. They didn't like his stance on this because they wanted to accept that Jesus was just like any of us. Then you don't have a responsibility. I mean, if Jesus isn't God, then what do you got to worry about? If he's just like us, how easy it is just to say, he's just, he's just one, of, one of the gang. He's just like us. And then that just continues to filter and just, again, evil takes something beautiful and flips it around and takes the sacred and the holy and desecrates it. Guys, that's why it's a big deal that you figure out who Jesus Christ is. <laughs> was he the son of God? I mean, was he the son of man? Both, because both are needed in the midst of this. It's interesting, he died in 373, so he never saw it all come about on the Nicene Creed. But he's a man who we owe a great deal of gratitude because he would not compromise and not let it go. Even though the pressure was heavily upon him to do so. Even though he lost his church, he was kicked out of the city, then they brought him back, then they kicked him out, then they brought him back. 56 year battle. This is what Athanasius wrote. God needed a body to complete the work of redemption. There was no saving us without becoming like us. No restoring the image of man without bearing it. No defeating death without dying. He is the mighty one, the artificer, which means the craftsman. Of all himself prepared this body in the virgin as a temple for himself and took it for his very own. The incarnation, guys, is this miracle that got it talked about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. I say, guys, here's a sign going to be to you a virgin will be with child. His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Jesus was not like us. There was no one like him. But he had to take on human flesh to redeem human flesh, us. The Nicene Creed, I, I put it in your notes, but I'm going to have it up on here in the screen. Some of you probably have said this many, many times in churches that you grew up in. This is what it says. We believe in one God and Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That was the emphasis that, had to, that Antonius would not give up on. Begotten, not made, not created. Being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. 
He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world that is to come. As your understanding, we said this through the whole series of knowledge of the holy, your understanding of God, your understanding of Jesus Christ, your understanding of the Holy Spirit dictates the course and future of your life. How important it is to wrap around that. Are you going to totally understand it? No. It's, it's just like this thing. Yeah. I know that I could geometrically go, okay, the two angles, if you take this and divide this, it's going to fit that square. I, I, I get that. But I still sit in amazement going, how it takes up the same space? Why is there a box there? It's the same. How, how, does, how does God come into a human and become one of the same? He, he's all God and he's all man. Because God made the sacrifice and he had to be man to make it because the price had to be paid. We're more sinful more weak and wretched than we'll ever even believe. If you don't sit there and just amaze yourself how, I mean, that you can sit here and have the most glorious thought about God and then two seconds later have the most evil thought. <laughs> Guys, we are sinful. Some of the races, even in bed, you're lying on your deathbed and you're thinking of evil things. Man, we're an evil bunch of people. Some of you are just better at it than others, but yet we are evil people, sinful people. But at the same time, as Psalm 38 says, God wants us to set a feast before us in his house and wants you to take a, I love this, wants you to take a drink from the river of his desires. sought after, how loved we are, as that's Christmas, because Christmas leads to Easter. Christmas is all about Easter, not just the death, but the resurrection. My hope this Christmas as we go into the season, one that we don't miss it, we don't get caught up. I mean, I, I've watched It's a Wonderful Life three times already. I've probably got four more in me. I mean, I have my Christmas movies I watched and they make me laugh and they put a smile on my face. Got a new grandbaby coming before, before Christmas. Right? Because <laughs> Mike has got to work on Christmas Eve. We can't lose him. I, mean, I just think he's just got to be here. And the joy that we don't miss it but like Jeff sang in the song, make sure we tell somebody. Tell somebody 
when they're caught up into it. Because remember, this is a joyous time, but for some and some in this room, this is the hardest time of the year too. For some and some watching, this is the first time without a loved one. First Christmas, you already did the first Thanksgiving and now now you face Christmas. It can be the loneliest time of the year. Believer in Christ, let me encourage you, tell someone. Look at people's eyes to see in their eyes, is there a sadness or is there a joy? Bring them the joy of Christmas. Bring them the hope. Bring them the love that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him shall have never perish but have everlasting life. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day. You got his dress, got us here, so you're not done with us yet. Help us take advantage of that. Help us not miss you. In a world that wants to flip everything upside down, in a world that wants to get us mad and stressed out, may we keep our focus right on what this season is about. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.